Yeah. Now we having we have the idea of the classic and the idea of the classic and the idea of reading classics is already what we have criticized in the letter to Rossi, right? Uh, of Rossi, etc. Right? So we're actually talking about how bad the classics have been, right? And that kind of understanding actually changes when we have something called a romantic literature, right? Yeah, so the idea of they've not absolutely discarded the classics, but the classics are very important still. Yeah, and I think we talked about Thoreau, the person who inspires Gandhi in civil disobedience. And what is interesting about Thoreau is Thoreau uh, advocates that everybody reads classics for two hours in the morning every day, right? Yeah, so that's that's something that is, though he's a romantic, it looks a little strange. And of course, uh, we can't break away from a lot of other traditions, right? We might adopt this idea of being romantic or Victorian or modern or whatever that is, right? But we can't actually take a break away from our uh, kind of habits that we've already had, right? Yeah? And the idea of the discipline of sitting down and reading the classics two hours a day, right? is a kind of a discipline which is important, especially for us, right? As we are students of arts and students of literature, etc., right? So when we're talking about the idea of discipline, we're actually talking about how does discipline work, right? Yeah, we're actually talking about what happens to the idea of discipline, how does discipline uh, uh, make you or unmake you, right? And what is the importance of reading? Reading itself, one, and reading the classics is another, right? Yeah. So the idea of the classics is is giving you a whole array of people from different walks of life, right? And hello, yeah, uh, yeah. So we are talking about the idea of the classics and how the classics would give a range of disciplines to people, right? Yeah, and uh, a range of people, different people, half animal, half human, right? That's one of them, right? And the idea is uh, we have these mythical creatures because they're talking about how do these creatures operate, right? When you have a goat and a human being together, or you have an elephant and a human being on one uh, kind of being, right? Yeah, so the idea of what elephant and what uh, human being qualities, right? Or you have this idea uh, in this book called Steppenwolf by Thomas Mann, right, which is a 20th century uh, kind of classic, right. Uh, it's actually talking about a wolf self and a human self, right. Yeah, so that's of course there in the in the myths, right, and uh, that's where mythology is important, right, and the classics also important because the classics and mythology tell us about what are our value systems and it actually reiterates the human idea of what is value, right? Yeah, and that's again taken up because values keep changing, right? It's not that uh, the, the classical notion is there's only one value and then no other changes in value, right? But today we believe that in time, in, in time and in history with different kinds of ideas, our value systems are changing, right? So that's something else uh, we have to keep in mind and we're talking about we've already looked at Rossi and we've already looked at how does 
one class of people look at the classics, right? And the idea of the antipathy towards the classic, right? And I think last time we were talking about the idea of class in classic, right? Which is a, a kind of a very important marker that we are talking about because when we are talking about class, we are actually saying that, well, uh, when we talk about the classical, we are actually talking about class and it's only people of the upper classes who actually uh, read and consume the classics and also have produced them, right? Yeah. So the idea of what we call in literature the canon, that is a list of books which have to be read, we think that the canon is actually the classical canon has to be read. You have to know your Dante, you have to know your Shakespeare, you have to know your Dickens, you have to know all these kind of other kinds of people, right? And that's exactly what happens when we're talking about the canon, right? So, uh, uh, and of course, uh, maybe some of you and most of you, I think, are not from uh, the language departments, right? So the idea of the canon uh, is not, uh, may not appear as important, but when you talk about the canon of political science or the canon of sociology, yeah, you have to read the basic kind of writers or the early sociologists, the early psychologists. Yeah? So we have to see how things change and how things progress and how things are different from the earlier people. Right? Yeah? So that's one of the reasons why the idea of the classics become important and that's perhaps an old take from Dante's idea of uh, even if you write in the vernacular, Right? For him, Italian was the vernacular, right? You're actually writing on the basis of the classics, and the classics are informing you what's going on, right? Uh, next year, when you study in your foundation, uh, yeah, this is the second year? No, this is the first year, right? Yeah? When you study the, in your foundation, you study J.K. Rowling, uh, she's actually talking about uh, what happens when you do the classics, right? And we have people like Conrad who writes his Heart of Darkness and uh, The Nigger of the Narcissus and all those kind of novels and he is not even English, he is Polish, right? And being a Polish person, he is able to write uh, good English and he learns his English after the age of 40, right? But he's read the classics as a deckhand on the ship, right? Because the ships normally had libraries, right? And maybe they do now, right? And they normally had classics on the libraries because there's a lot of time and when you have a lot of time and you have nothing to do, one of the things to do is read the classics, right? Yeah. So uh, that's where a lot of imagination, it's not that I'm prescribing this, right? But uh, a lot of literature goes back to what you call a classic and we have in the 20th, in the 18th century, we have the person called Samuel Johnson who's looking at Shakespeare and uh, he's looking at Shakespeare uh, because he is a neoclassical writer and neoclassicism is all around. They don't call themselves neoclassical, but they call them Augustine, right? And they do the same things uh, uh, that the French neoclassicals do, right? They translate the plays of Shakespeare into, uh, they try to write, rewrite the plays of Shakespeare and make them into what you call the classical form, right? And of course, Dryden uh, fails because Shakespeare is a far superior artist than Dryden and hasn't bothered about the classical form, right? Though the other people's like people like Marlowe and Ben Johnson and Webster and uh, Green and Peel and all those contemporaries of Shakespeare who actually uh, keep to the form of classical 
the classical or the notion of the classical when they are writing their drama, right? Of course, they di they divide from it and they uh, actually do a different kind of take, have a different kind of take, and the classics, of course, have inspired, right? So, uh, is there any literature which is not inspired by classics? Yeah, that's a question that we need to ask, right? And we're talking about music, and we're talking about uh, uh, any kind of literature which we like, right? So even when we talk about Dalit literature, we talk about uh, uh, street music, we talk about rag, uh, uh, what's it called? Thrash music and all those kind of things, right? Now, uh, has that got anything to do with the classic, right? Yeah, and when does it become classic? That's a question, right? Because today we are talking about rock and roll, right? And we're talking about classic rock and roll, right? So we're talking about people like the Beatles and Elvis Presley and all those kind of people, right? Yeah? So you become the classic rock and roll and then you have acid rock and then you have so many other kinds of uh, kind of music that come in after that, right? And do these kinds of music actually talk about the classic, right? And I would say yes, right? Because when a long time ago, uh, the fine arts students asked me to, uh, when I was teaching there, now I don't teach there, right? They said that they, they had a film club and they were talking about this idea of music, right? And they asked me to look at a person called Jack White, right? And I said, what the hell am I going to do with it? Because I only know a little bit of classical music, right? But what was interesting uh, is I took up the challenge and I tried to understand what are these people doing in this kind of music, right? Yeah? And uh, they're talking about uh, uh, lengthening the the scale, right? They're talking about going off the scale. They're doing all those kind of things. But what is interesting and very important, right, is this person who actually is the leader of that kind of a musical movement is actually trained uh, a trained pianist in classical music, right? Yeah. So uh, you begin to wonder: uh, Is this absolutely necessary, or is it not? Right? Yeah. So uh, maybe Beethoven is the best example, right? Because for most people, he's thought about as classical, right? But that's the early Beethoven. The later Beethoven becomes what you call uh, romantic, right? The the structure of his music is now termed as romantic, right? So you might like to look at that if somebody's interested in music, go and look at and listen to the early uh, Beethoven the later Beethoven, this is the Bach and the classical kind of uh, 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 arrangements of his music, right? So when we're talking about art, when we're talking about music, when we're talking about literature, we're talking about the classics, right? Yeah? And he's talking about dance, right? And now he's talking about reading the classics, right? And what happens over there is, is an exercise of the intellect, yeah? Is less to be regarded as an exercise of intellect than a discipline of humanity. Right? The particular advantage, now the discipline of humanity, we talked about the quadruvia and the triumvir and the quadruvia, right? Yeah, and we're talking about the idea of proportion, right? And proportion is something that you get from this philosopher called Plato, right? In his uh, Tiamos, uh, which is one of the, uh, it's actually about Socrates, right? He's talking about the idea of proportion. Right? So when we're talking about musical proportion, we're talking about poetry, we're talking about classics, right? And the idea is, we're talking about the idea of Aristotle 
which is also giving you a balance, right? And that's what I'm uh, a kind of letter is doing, right? It's actually telling us that, well, we have to have a balance between all these things. And the classics are one of the things which tell you that there is a balance, right? You might get the most extreme and you might get the, the moderate, right? And the question is, where do you find yourself in the scheme of things? A very Platonic idea, right? And maybe many of us react to it and say, oh no, that's Plato and we don't want to get into that kind of mode, right? Yeah? But the question is, uh, that cannot be wished away, right? Because uh, when we're talking about the classics, the classics are talking about almost everybody and everything, right? They've already said it. That's a kind of a structuralist point of view. And you, uh, whether you're doing uh, uh, psychology or you're doing sociology, right? You'll, you'll have to come to terms with this idea of uh, the structuralist, right? Yeah? And the structuralist, the functionalist, all those kind of people, right? You'll get into all that, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's saying the peculiar advantage of this mode of education consists not so much in strengthening the understanding as in softening and reflect, refining the taste, right? So we're talking about taste, and when we're talking about taste, we're talking about value, right? So the idea of value, some people don't have a value for education, right? And values have to be taught, right? They don't come direct, right? It's a certain culture which has a certain value for certain things, right? Uh, and that's when we get into this thing which is later than uh, uh, Hazlitt, that's in the Victorian age, Okay, uh, we are talking about the idea of teaching people, we are talking about the artificial and how the artificial slowly becomes the natural, right? So the idea of the natural keeps changing from age to age. What is thought about as natural in one age is not thought about as natural in the other age, right? And in uh, the age after Hazlitt, we have the half natural, half artificial, right? So that's again something that you might like to look about, look at, and think about, right? And the idea of taste, and how do you define taste, and what is taste, again and again becomes a problem, right? Yeah, it becomes a problem for the people who think about what is this thing called taste, right? And how do I say that your taste is better than my taste, because that's what the idea of the culture, or the, the high culture people are talking about, and that's what you have in a later age, which is the age of Matthew Arnold, he's talking about culture and anarchy, right? Yeah, he's actually talking about what is not classical. Yeah, so he's talking about the classical kind of art, and he's talking about um, the the non-classical art, right? So that immediately is putting all the people who belong to the lower classes of society and bracketing them out, right? And this is, of course, a political thing at one level, which perhaps. Uh, uh, Matthew Arnold is not aware of, but today we are very well aware of, and Ma Matthew Arnold becomes one of these people who we have to think of very skeptically because he's also an influencer of education, right? And he's influenced the educational system because he was a, a director of schools or what, some big uh, kind of job, and he had a pension also from the British government for his schoolwork, right? So uh, we are all affected by him. And we may not uh, know that we are affected, but the idea of uh, the idea of how do they regard classics and how do they regard taste, okay? And we have to be very skeptical about the idea of how do we regard taste, okay? How do I say my taste is better than your taste, right? And when we talk about art, we talk about different tastes, 
right? Yeah. So that's what we have with our students. We're talking about difference. We're talking about tolerance of difference, right? And we to talk about value in difference and value of painting different things and value of uh, having different kinds of music, right? What you focus on, I won't focus on, right? Yeah. And different people, even as teachers and even as individuals, there are certain things that we value more and value less, right? Yeah. So and there are certain things that we develop a taste for and don't develop a taste for, right? Yeah, so that's not easy to do, right? When we're talking about taste, when we're talking about culture, these are things that are acquired, right? And they're not natural, right? There's only one thing that is, one thing that we might inherit, that is, we might come from a family which is uh, a family of people who read a lot. So we get into that, right? And that's what we call determinism, right? And uh, we have the whole idea of determinism over here, right? Uh, yeah, it get, gives men liberal views. It accustoms the mind to take an interest in things for itself. I think we've done all this, so I'm just going on, right? Yeah, uh, and I'm just reading it through. It teaches us to believe that there is something really great and excellent in the world, surviving all the shocks of accidental and fluctuations of opinion and raises us above the low and servile fear which bows only to present power and upstart authority. Right? Yeah. So it, we are talking about something that there is in human beings, something that there is outside the human being which orders things. That's what the classics are telling you. Right? Uh, it's not quite about God, but it's telling you that there's order in the world. Right? There's a human order and there's a worldly order. Right? And you don't have to bother about dictators or fascist governments or anything of the sort because when you look at the world, you find that those people come and go. Right? And the idea is human beings actually want a kind of stable government. Right? They want not an extreme government, they want a stable government. Right? And that's why fascism fails uh, in Italy very badly. Right? They might try to get uh, the fascist in. Right? But what happens with the fascist is uh, you have it, Italy, which is an old culture. Right? And old cultures can't put up with fascism for too much of time. Right? So uh, that's uh, the explanation about why fascism doesn't uh, take, it takes root in Italy, the word comes from Italy from fascio, right? But the idea is it also gets destroyed because the culture of the classics, the Roman classics, right? Is something that defeats it, right? Yeah, and when you have the French and fascism, uh, though they have fascism, yeah, but they still have the classical background, right? Uh, the neoclassical background, the classical background, they have all those kind of things, right? And these are things that culture uh, protects against uh, a kind of authoritarian regime, etc. Right? And he calls it upstart authority, right? And I find that a little difficult because here you have a romantic kind of person who's using this kind of upstart authority, right? Which actually the romantics should welcome, right? Because the idea of revolution uh, is associated with upstart authority, right? The people who didn't have authority now have authority, right? So you might uh, think about what the idea of all that is, right? And uh, when we're talking about revolutions, we're talking about this idea of the upstart, rev uh, the upstart authority, etc., right? Of course, uh, when you look at Rossi and we look at, compare these two letters, 
right? This is probably attacking what these kids are writing with the teacher, right? Okay, and that's why these two letters together are really fantastic to look at, right? Uh, Rome and Athens filled a place in the history of mankind which can never be occupied again, right? Now he's giving you this idea of the whole idea of Rome and Athens filled and he's making a universal statement, right? Which can never be occupied again, right? And for all the people who think that we can go back to the India uh, which was there uh, in the ancient past, which India we don't know, right? We are talking about the India perhaps before Buddhism, right? And that kind of India uh, is uh, whether ancient India was Hindu or Buddhist, right? It was definitely not Hindu because Hinduism didn't exist, right? It was definitely uh, Buddhist, right? It was Jain, it was all those other kinds of things, right? And it was very interesting, right? Now, how do you go back there? Right? This is what we call revivalism in uh, sociology and in political science, etc. Right? That's a problem. Right? Yeah, and you might have revivalist governments and uh, all those kind of things. Let's make uh, uh, America great again. Right? That's a revivalist kind of thing. Once upon a time we were great, we've lost our greatness. We've got to go back again to that greatness. Right? And that's of course uh, an idea which is an interesting idea, but it's not possible. Right? Yeah, we can't go back again, right? So when we're talking about neoclassical art, we're trying to go back and imitate the, the classics, right? And that's what, uh, there's a whole age which is called the neoclassical age, right? Which is taking the classics and it's called neoclassical because it's taking some elements of the classic and trying to revive it, right? And of course, they become different. Or you have what you call the neoplatonists, right? Who take all the kind of philosophy after Plato, right, and after Christianity, and oh, little before Christianity, right, and they weave all the philosophers and they are different kinds of different understandings of philosophy together, and they form a different kind of school called the Neoplatonist, right? Yeah. So they basically Plato in mind, but then what happens to all that has happened after Plato, and how does it get rewritten re over there, right? Yeah. So when we say let's go back to a Hindu Rashtra. What exactly are we saying, right? Yeah. What happens after that? How has all this stuff been incorporated into us, right? And when we go back there, we'll be able to put it in, right? So these are questions of the idea of revivalism, etc., which is important, right? And of course, many people have a pro would have a problem with this idea. Rome and Athens filled a place in their history, and they, this is what many scholars are actually complaining about when they're talking about how this thing has been structured that uh, Greece is the cradle of European history, right? And that's been questioned, right? And in India, it's perhaps again because of the Europeans, right? That they think that the Indo-Gangetic plane, right? Uh, and the idea of uh, the, the, uh, the Ganges Basin, right? Yeah, that's where the Indian culture lived, right? They're not thinking about the rest of India, right? And that's a problem even today, right? Because that's the way the British have written on the basis of, uh, so some of you might be historians uh, or studying history, right? So what model have the British written on, right? The British have looked at this kind of idea that uh, this place, plane of the Ganges is actually where Indian culture was, right? Yeah, and whatever happened 
that's where Indian culture gets turned, right? And if you think that that's the seat of Indian culture, then many people in India today will say, well, we're not part of it, right? Yet especially from all the southern states, they'll definitely say, we're not part of it, right? Yeah. So we begin to wonder, uh, and this is, of course, a myth that has been woven that all European culture actually begins in Greece, right? And of course, it spreads because of the Roman Empire, right? The Greek had an empire, but they taught about everybody is lower than them. The Romans come and take over the Greeks and they create their kind of classics and they learn from the Greeks and they are enslaved by the culture of the Greeks. That's the expression, right? And of course, uh, that is how Greek culture operates or the idea that Greek culture has actually dominated European thinking, right? Yeah, and of course, we have all the tribes of Europe who get integrated over a period of more than 2,000 years into what you call European civilization, right? And that's the model that we have over here in India and many people, Hindu, including the Hindu Dvabadis, right, who actually think that we can go and have a European model, right? So that's not, it's not Hindu it's actually European, uh, it's a European model of who we are, right? So we have all these things and this is why this is an interesting lesson, right? Uh, there were two cities set on a hill which could not be hit. All eyes have seen them and their lights shine like a mighty sea maker into the abyss of time, right? Yeah, so he's talking about the city on the hill and this is taking the Judeo-Christian culture and the uh, Greco-Roman culture, that's the culture of Greece and Rome and the culture of the Jews and the Christians and putting it together, right? So that's, this is what Europe is, right? Though today Christianity may not make any sense, right? Uh, Greek uh, mythology is still read, Christianity is still read, but it's, it's not about being practiced anymore, it's talking about being secular and living as secular people, right? So that's one. But then you, you're going back and his language is the language of the Bible where Jerusalem is talked about as a city on the hill, right? Yeah, and the idea is and a light on the lampstand, right? This is what the Americans call themselves because they think that they are God's, this is God's own land and they're using biblical metaphors to talk about themselves, right? Yeah, so we're talking about city on the hill and uh, the light on the lampstand and all that kind of thing which he's using over there, but he's not talking about Christianity, he's not talking about Jerusalem or Israel or whatever that is, but he's talking about the Greco-Roman culture and he's talking about the two cities set on a hill, one is Greece and one is Rome, right? Which could not be hid, all eyes have seen them and the, their light shines like a sea, mighty sea marker into the abyss of time, right? So he's talking about time which is important, which when you read the classics, you can confront, right? Because the idea of time, when did time begin, is a question that all human beings have, right? Yeah, so when did time begin? Yeah, when was the idea of India first? Okay, or was there an idea of India? What happened? And we're talking about huge periods of time, right? Yeah, and when in India today, you have an attack against the Mughal rulers, we're talking about 800 years of history, right? and 800 years where the culture changes in a very, very, very big manner, right? Yeah, and how can you throw all the culture out, 
right? And of course, we have had after that 200 years of British rule, right? And we're talking about all that kind of thing that changes in us, right? So, can we go back to an ancient past? Yeah. Uh, can we go back to a Buddhist past or a Hindu past or a Jain past? Or, and the question is, would it be pan-Indian, right? Yeah. Or would it be all Indian? Or would it be some people, right? And the idea is, of course, when we go back to the ancient past, this uh, even if we go back beyond 1716, right? Uh, when the word is used as self-definition, right? Uh, you get a, you have a problem because. Uh, uh, there will be people who call themselves Vaishnavs and Shaivites and different kinds of cults which operated in India, right? And the question is, they won't have this kind of label, right? So, uh, we, we have these images which are very simplified, right? Where we think that all European culture goes back to Greece and Rome, right? Yeah, so it's for the, it, of course, it's a different system, right? Because they manage to systematize it and through the church, uh, they managed to get down to the masses. That's taken a long period of time. And that's happened in what you call uh, the medieval age, where you have parish schools. One, you have another story about a man called Augustine, who says that Christianity should admit, uh, whatever is good for Christianity should be admitted. And that's why the classics are studied, right? So you have a big clash. Okay, Christianity is saying one thing, the classics are saying another, but you can't throw out the classics because the classics are important, right? And they're teaching you rhetoric and you're teaching you all those kind of things. And what happens over there is you get a different kind of culture out of the mix of all these kinds of cultural elements, right? Yeah, so uh, when we're talking about uh, European culture, right, we're, and we're talking about European literature, we're talking about this cross that we have, right? Yeah, and um, people who go so far as to say a lot of European culture actually comes from Africa, is filtered out through uh, Egypt and comes into Europe, right? So you might like to go and look at all those kinds of uh, historical and uh, uh, questioning and uh, what goes on over there, right? Still green with bays, each ancient star altar stands, right? Now he's giving you a quotation, right? About the reach of sacrilegious hands, secure from flames, from envy's fiercer rage, hail bards triumphant, born in happier days, immortal heirs of universal praise, whose honors with increase of ages grow, and as uh, streams roll down, enlarging as they flow. Right now, he's, I don't know which point this is, right? But what is interesting is. He's talking about the ancients and he's actually glorifying the ancients, right? Yeah, somebody was talking about Macbeth, uh, not Macbeth, uh, Merchant of Venice, right? So the first part of Merchant of Venice is actually talking about the modern and the ancient, right? And should we uh, worship the ancient or should we worship the, worship the moderns, right? And this is something that keeps coming up in all ages, right? Should we go back to the ancient ways of looking at things? If we can, right? Yeah, but we can't, right? We know as human beings that we can't reach there because everything is changed, right? When we talk about a religion and we say our religion has not changed, then we're telling ourselves a lie because materially we've already changed, right? We use lights, we use loudspeakers, we use uh, laptops, we use projectors, we use all these kind of equipment, we use CCTV cameras on 
for surveillance of who comes to the church or the mosque or the temple, right? Yeah, and we have uh, if you go to Kashi Vishwanath or any of these temples, you have police guards and those kind of people are something that we inherit from the British, right? Yeah, so the idea of the, uh, the, the weaponry and all those kind of things are there, right? So uh, we we going back to this idea of uh, the ancient stars stand out, right? Above the reach of sacrilegious hands, right? And the idea is they are godlike, right? The ancients or the classics are godlike, right? And all, all that comes after that are debased, okay? It's actually saying that, look, when you're talking about classics, we're talking about gods, right? We're talking about a godlike world, right? And when we talk about human beings, uh, they can't even touch it, right? They try to destroy the classic, right? So that's something that he's saying. Secure from flames, from envy's fierce rage, right? The idea is even if you destroy the classic, the classic cannot be destroyed because it's a kind of set of values, a set of thinking that you can't get rid of, right? Yeah? And partially that's true because we read it, we consume it, we keep it alive in our thinking, right? And a lot of it influences the way we live and the way we think. And that's where it is. But this kind of dedication and this kind of worship of the classic becomes a problem, right? Even when we talk about Shakespeare, we talk about something called bardolatry, right? Like idolatry, right? Worshipping idols. And you have a lot of people who worship Shakespeare, right? And the idea is, this is what Shakespeare says, and Shakespeare is the greatest, and all this kind of thing. And you meet a lot of people in India who actually do that, right? Yeah? So you can't talk against Shakespeare. Right? And if you're from Bengal, you can't talk against Tagore, right? Because these Tagore and Shakespeare are almost equal, right? As far as uh, Bengali culture goes, right? Yeah, and we have, of course, uh, you can't talk against these kind of people, and that's what is happening over here. This has this letter, yeah. And what would they say about Ross, the Rossi letter that we studied, right? When one group of people say. Hang your Shakespeare, hang your Tagore, get rid of it, right? Yeah, and then people get upset and say, "Well, how can you say that, right? Tagore is great, and you can't, you can't even point a finger at him, etc." And you have women who write, and actually, Bengali poetry begins as a reaction to this kind of spiritual poetry that Tagore writes, right? Don't trust me. You can read Sujit Mukherjee, right? Uh, translation as discovery is there in the Hansa Mehta Library. Or you can get a copy and read it if you're really interested in knowing about the Gitanjali, uh, the Janagana Mana, right, which Tagore writes, all those kind of things. And that's very interesting, right? Yeah. So uh, the question of putting people on altar stands, that is a godlike image, right? You're actually worshipping them, right? And the classics are for Hazlitt, something like that, right? So is he a romantic really, right? You begin to wonder where he stands. Right, and you begin to wonder what he's saying, yeah, uh, because the actually the romantic is moving away from this idea of classicism in its pure form, right? It's actually trying to break meter, break rhythm, uh, and use Wordsworth's kind of understanding of poetry is a language of one man to another man, right, or one person to another person. If we're living in a different age, we can't use man, right? Yeah, and it's also. It's a spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling, right? Yeah, which the classics are not, right? The classics are very carefully constructed, and even the romantics cannot get rid of this idea of careful 
construction of the lines and sentences, right? Yeah, so we, we must note that we have not quite hypocrisy, but a kind of inconsistency in every age, right? Yeah, and we might not be aware of it, right? Well, the Romantics didn't even call themselves Romantics. They're talking about themselves as modernist, right? They're talking about themselves as modern, not modernist, right? Yeah. Uh, above the reach of sacrilegious hands, secure from flames, from envy's fierce rage, destructive war, and involving age, right? So, uh, now classics also talk about war, right? Yeah. And uh, involving age, so it's something that's timeless, and that's what he's saying. A classic is timeless. You can't destroy it. You might burn a classic, but what do you get out of it? The classic still remains because they're in the minds of people, right? Yeah. And people can rewrite the classics because some people know their, know their Shakespeare by heart, know their uh, uh, Ovid and all the classical writers also by heart, and that's something else that you have, right, which we might not uh, think great of, but many people do that even today, right. Uh, of course, we have that tradition in India, we have that tradition in Islam, right, yeah, where people actually learn the whole of the Quran, right. I had a student and I said, well, if you manage to memorize the whole of the Quran, why don't you try to remember the whole of Shakespeare, right, yeah, and there are many people like that, right? My Shakespeare teacher is definitely like that. She can tell you which line, which, yeah. And anybody who studied uh, Shakespeare in Calcutta, right? At least in my day, right? I would immediately tell you which line, which act, which scene, right? And which line number, right? Which is something I can't do, right? Though I can maybe quote some pieces of Shakespeare, right? Yes, yeah, so uh, the idea of bardolatry, the idea of the ancients being almost like gods. This is a kind of uh, a very sacred and very religious kind of understanding that Hazlitt gives. And uh, that's to the sun, right? And it's kind, today we might think about it as secular because the classics are looked at as mythical, right? Yeah. And we're talking about the idea of going back to the classics, not for the characters or valuing the characters, but what other, and that's why mythology becomes so important. Right? Yeah. And I hate all the people who think that mythology is history. Right? Because history is a different kind of way of talking about the world. Right? And mythology is a different way of talking about the world. Right? Yeah. And if you don't understand that mythology is actually talking about a value system, though a myth might also be interesting because you can use it and try to understand how history works uh, along with the mythology. Right? So you can, uh, and of course, with uh, modern archaeology and modern history, right, we can see uh, that some of the uh, the myths have changed in a period of time, right? Because you actually radio dated, or you actually say that well, these things were not there. A chariot with metal rims were not there, right? And that's what people have done with the Greek classics, right? So, uh, do we look at uh, Hazlitt as important enough, okay? Or do we look at his ideas as important enough? And uh, what he's saying is something that is traditional, right? Yeah, you're supposed to teach, teach people classics, right? And classics have to be learned, right? Like for instance, if I have already told you this, sorry uh, for the repetition, but uh, there's some years ago, uh, right? Uh, I think in the 80s, right? 
when Prince Charles just got married and moving around the place and going and visiting schools, right? He went to a school and asked them, yeah, you, uh, how, how much of Shakespeare do you know? He said, Shakespeare, we don't study Shakespeare, right? And he was totally shocked, right? Shakespeare is not studied, right? Yeah, so that gives you a kind of anxiety which you needn't have, right? And that's what Rossi's letter tells us, right? Your anxiety about not knowing Shakespeare, not reading text, all these things are unfounded, right? So you get different people looking at it, right? And some people say, well, you have to study the classics, right? Or you have to study grammar, right? So these are important things when we're talking about thinking, yeah? So he says, Hail Bard's triumphant, born in happier days, immortal heirs of universal praise, whose honors will with increase of ages grow as streams roll down, enraged as they flow, right? Now he says, Hail Bard's triumphant, born in happier days. So that's the poem he's uh, talking about, right? And that's very, very romantic, right? Because you're saying that the past was very good. We are in a rotten age, right? Yeah. And uh, there is a Marxist critic who they asked me to teach over here when I came in, Terry Eagleton, who is very much alive, right? And he says something interesting about the Marxists, because the Marxists are also romantic, right? He says, forget about the good old days and put up with the bad new ones. Forget about the good old days, put up with the bad new ones, right? So he's saying, the good old days were great, yeah? Put up with the real world, which is bad, right? You might say it's bad. For other people, it's maybe not bad, right? And the idea of how do you look at this line when you're saying, that these people have written when everything was great, when you had a bardic kind of way of going about things, right? That's what we think also about uh, the bards who wrote the Ramayana and Mahabharata and, and all the other texts that we have, which were supposed to be orally transmitted till the time when somebody wrote them down, right? And they were different versions, right? So that's again something important, right? But he's saying there is something called universal about these people and that's why we have to read the classics, right? Today, of course, we don't believe in the universal, right? Yeah, we, you can't say every common woman or every common man today, okay, is just a kind of a, a, a derivative of what you get in the classics, right? Or what happens today is all there in the classics, right? So many people think that way, right? And... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm in a lecture. I'll call you back later. Yeah. Right. So, uh, we, we are talking about the idea of uh, the classic, right? We're talking about the universal and we're talking about, uh, yeah, and the idea is whose honors with increase of ages grow as streams roll down, enlarged as they flow. Right now, you might like to look at that, right? And when, we, when we're talking about the idea of uh, uh, the classic, right? And we're actually talking about the idea of uh, enlarging uh, as they flow, right? So, value of the classic grows in time, right? Now, how do you look at that, right? It grows in time because when we're looking at the idea of the classic, if somebody's written a big comment, so I'll read that out. 
Yeah, I'll just finish what I'm saying and read your comment out, right? And it's better that you speak out instead of writing a comment because it takes a lot of time. Yeah, right? So when we're talking about uh, the classic and the commentary on the classic, right? And how to read a classic, right? This grows with time and that's what he's saying, which is perhaps true, right? Like for instance, in the English language, uh, the greatest amount of work that is written or the greatest amount of research that is done even today is on the Bible and Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Uh, though we have modern literature, we have postmodern, we have romantic, we have Victorian, we have neoclassical, whatever that is, right? People go back and go back to the classics and they try to study it, right? Yeah. So we have something that's important over there and uh, the idea of appreciation or how we study Shakespeare keeps growing, right? Yeah. So, for instance, you get psychology. Psychology is a new discipline, right? And people go and have a psychoanalytical reading of Shakespeare's plays, right? Or you have a new philosophy called existentialism, which comes up in the uh, in, in, in the 60s, is its high point, right? With Sartre and all those kind of people, right? So you go and read Shakespeare with this idea of uh, existentialism, right? Or you go and read Shakespeare with the idea of Marxism, right? Or you go and read Shakespeare with the idea of feminism, right? Or postmodernism, or postcolonialism, right? So that's something that adds on to the classic, right? So what he's saying is not true or not false, right? But he's talking about the value of the classic improving in time, right? Which was already said by a person called Ben Johnson, uh, Samuel Johnson, because Samuel Johnson is saying that a classic has to be a hundred years old, right? So when you talk about anything more than hundred years old, then it's a classic. That's Johnson's definition when he's talking about Shakespeare, right? And of course, I'm sorry, we're talking from a post-colonial situation, right? And we're an older culture, but suddenly things which are hundred years old become important to India, right? Yeah, if it's a stone which is hundred years old, yeah, then it has to be preserved, right? But that doesn't come absolutely into the culture, right? It takes a long time, right? Like for instance, the modern uh, kind of cultures, like the English culture, the American culture, right? They actually want to preserve anything that's 100 years old, right? So you might land in trouble, at least I know some people who landed in trouble, right? One of my aunts is a violinist, so she was taking her violin to the United States, right? And over there she had a problem because they said antique, more than 100 years old, right? So if you go around in India and looking for anything that's more than 100 years old, you'll find hundreds of things that are more, more than 100 years old, right? And you, you keep them as antiques, right? The whole idea of the antique and antique value, right? Now somebody has written something here. It is interesting to see how Hazlitt talks about things beyond books and within within them both yeah he talks about classical literature praises it and notices its importance in our lives right on the other hand it would be wrong if we do not notice how he also talks about the classical culture uh, social systems and architecture too this is beyond books but a vital importance to our lives right yeah uh, I'm not saying that's not there and uh, whoever's written that that's absolutely true. He's talking about a balanced existence, right? The problem is he's a romantic talking about a balanced existence, right? So where does he stand? That's my problem as a literature student, right? Yeah. 
because we are talking about this being a neoclassical value and what you are saying is he is actually getting into this Aristotelian mode which is talking about the Aristotelian golden mean, right? Where it is not too extreme, not too much to one side or not to the other side, right? And when he is talking about the classics, he is actually uh, disturbing that kind of balance, right? And praising the classics more than anything else, right? Which many people do, right? Yeah, they say, well, all this modern literature is rubbish, right? Yeah, and we can't say that, right? So, would you say James Joyce is rubbish, right? Then he's so difficult to read and so difficult to understand and is, is a classic in many, many ways. And of course, what you say is very right when we take all the very modernist kind of plays and literature like Beckett, uh, Samuel Beckett, right? Where did we go though, right? Yeah. Why do people like it? Of course, uh, it's an interesting play. Please read it, anybody who wants to, right? Yeah, it's a very interesting play in itself and it's a different form of a play. Uh, we must remember Beckett wrote it in French, not in English, and Beckett was Irish, right? Uh, and he translates it later into English, right? And uh, what's interesting about it is the school of people who are into high art, that's the Parisians, okay? For the people from Paris, when he shows the play in Paris, it's a failure, right? And that's tying into this idea of reading and how we read, right? So you read classical art in a particular kind of way and you read art in a particular kind of way, right? So when you get a new art form, do you have the tools to read it, right? Yeah, so that's something that's important. So when uh, Beckett writes his Waiting for Godot, nobody understands it, right? And uh, it's like this play that we had and we put up, right? That's called uh, Boiled Meats and Toast by Girish Karnad, right? Yeah. And uh, when I was putting it up, I told my cousins about it and all that kind of thing. And they said, yes, we saw it here and all that kind of thing. But we actually, when you go and see the kind of production they have, right? It's just that these people have not understood the play at all, right? Yeah. Because it's a different kind of mode. And how do you put it up? And a lot of the audience don't understand what it is, right? So it was put up in Calcutta. Uh, a lot of my cousins went and saw it and they said, well, we didn't even understand what's going on, right? Yeah. So what happens to that? Or you have uh, this movie called Hyder, right? Yeah. And I went for it in Pune and I saw it and it was interesting. And for me, it was very interesting because I'm a literature student. But a lot of people in the theater and even after that said, we don't understand it. We don't understand what's going on, right? Because it's got all these Shakespearean kinds of... Uh, ties to it, right? Yeah. So when we're talking about waiting for Godot, the Parisians who are high culture and have, uh, have read a lot of classics, there's a lot of French class classical, neoclassical literature and uh, uh, other kinds of literature, right? Uh, because the French are still considered the, the seat of European culture today, right? Yeah. So, and the idea of avant-garde or making new literature, making new art, that's supposed to be from France, right? And this is maybe a prejudice, a stereotype, whatever you like, right? But what is interesting is when Beckett's play fails and he translates it into English, which people say the English translation is terrible, waiting for Godot, right? And in French it means while waiting for Godot, the English translation is waiting for Godot, right? Yeah. And uh, it doesn't make sense to, to all the upper class, upper 
class people who are highly literate, who are highly into theatre and drama, but when he shows it in a prison, right? Uh, and of course, before that, he has a director, right? And the director says, instead of making these people wear bowler hats and suits, right? That's Vladimir and Esther Goff who are two tramps. He says, change them, right? And make them true tramps, right? Yeah, so that's something else that happens. And when he shows it in a prison called San Quentin Prison, right? In the United States, the prisoners understand the play, but your Parisian audience who are high classical, right? And have so much of background of literature, cannot understand it, right? So what would we say about this in regard to that, right? Yeah, so we are talking about life, yeah, true. Yeah, but we are also talking about this idea of, and we must remember that we are, we take Rossi's letter and we take this letter of Hazlitt and we just put them together and see what's going on, right? Yeah, and we're talking about a different group of people for whom the classics are rubbish, right? The classics are something that, why are you putting all these horrible things on us, right? Yeah, that's exactly what Rossi's letter is about, right? And you glorify the classics, okay? It's like me glorifying Shakespeare, and I'm sorry for all that kind of prejudice. Of course, I don't know whether you can call me a bardolitra, right? Yeah, but uh, maybe my guide and many other people would do, right? Because when I saw Omkar and I said, well, People should be shown Omkar and then uh, 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 after that they should read Shakespeare because they'll see what the difference between Shakespeare and this idea of uh, Bharatwaj's film, right? Yeah, so uh, you begin to wonder whether my position is okay, right? Yeah, because uh, of course the idea of Indian representations of Shakespeare or you have a Bengali one, right, uh, that's uh, not before Mamta Banerjee came to power and the TMC came to power, there was one educational minister who had written a play called Hamlat, right? Okay? And it's talking about India in Hamlet's work, right? It's a take on Hamlet, right? Yeah? And it's not for the elite, right? It's for local people, theatre people on the street, right? Yeah? So you get a lot of common people going and seeing the play and the play responds to them, right? It's inspired by Hamlet, but it's also local, right? So then the question of the classical elements, right? So when you have Waiting for Godot, it's a critique of the classic. It's a critique of the modern age that is under Descartes, right? Yeah? Uh, yeah, so Beckett's classic line, now Beckett has become a classic, right? And he's got a classic line, right? Uh, what does Descartes say? Anybody? Yeah, Descartes, we've all studied Descartes, no, Descartes has a famous pronouncement which says cogito ergo sum, that is I think therefore I am, badly translated in English perhaps, right, and what's interesting is Beckett comes up with an even more interesting line which says I stink therefore I am, right, I stink therefore I am, right, and we're talking about how do you look at reality and the world, right? If you don't stink, you don't exist, right? So we're talking about a different kind of understanding of the world, which goes back again to the classic, right? And if you read Waiting for Godot, you actually get very interesting lines, okay? It's actually uh, a kind of verse drama, and it's not verse drama. It's, okay, it's doing all the very interesting things. Like, for instance, you have, uh, you have this 
speech between Vladimir and Estragon, they say, it murmurs, it rustles, like leaves, like ashes, right? So you actually hear the music of the classical uh, kind of uh, formations, right? Yeah, so if you, if you want, if anybody of you wants to get into that, you can go and read Vedic Bogodo, and you can also read the classical kinds of uh, rhetorical devices that are used, right? So you have a lot of classical elements, right? Uh, the idea of time, which is also something that is being talked about here, right? Yeah, the idea of time is a very important thing, right? So we call it modernist in one way, right? And it relates to different people across different cultures, right? And in fact, it's an abstract play, right? So it shouldn't trouble anybody. It's got nothing to do with politics. That's what we all think, right? But when it was shown in South Africa, there were riots which broke out. Right? Because the whole riots, race riots broke out because uh, the play is actually touching all these lives. Right? And thank you very much for getting up that because we've gone into another kind of understanding of what Hazlitt is saying. Right? Yeah? So all these things are important. Right? What happens to them? How does it work? These are the classics. Right? Yeah? And you have a black person uh, or an African-American woman. Right? Black is a bad word to use. Right? Like, uh, what's her name? Uh, ha. She's talking about one of Shakespeare's sonnets, right? Yeah. Uh, what is her name? Sorry. Yeah, I've read so much of African-American poetry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyhow, forget her. Forget about that. Uh, it's not Eurota Weekly. It's not... Uh, I'm sorry, my memory is failing me, right? I'll get her name and I'll tell you uh, that, right? Yeah, so uh, it's this woman. Yeah, does anybody know who uh, reads at uh, Clinton's inaugural, presidential inaugural? I forgot her name, right? Uh, yeah, anyway, whatever it is, right? So in a face-to-face -face interview on the BBC, she's talking about Shakespeare having a universal appeal, right? And she goes to the sonnet by Shakespeare, which says, uh, when I look at my outcast state, right? And uh, that's a sonnet that we have in Shakespeare. She says, it's talking to me. It's talking to me as a black woman, right? And I don't care uh, whether Shakespeare is writing for white people or black people, but it's got this universal appeal and it makes sense to me, right? Yeah. Uh, I think I sent you this uh I don't know whether I put it up, right? But this song called Amazing Grace that is actually by a slave dealer, right? And it's used again for liberation of slaves, right? It's used again by African-Americans and other people who, uh, Nelson Mandela and all those kind of people who actually use that song and it's very motivational, right? Do they know that a slave driver who's put so many people to death, right? Has actually written that song, right? And even if it is, right? The, the text of the song lasts, right? So that's what uh, is a point that Hamlet is, uh, Hazlitt is making, right? And we're not saying that uh, cut off or destroy the ancient architecture, right? We have that issue today, right? Yeah, whether it's today's paper is talking about uh, uh, Louis Kahn's uh, architecture, I am Ahmedabad, Louis Kahn's architecture, right? We're also talking about... Uh, uh, this uh, place that is Loyton's Delhi, right? 
yeah, and the idea of the parliament house, which is going to be made into a scrap, right? Yeah. So we have all these ideas, and the question is how. And your question is very important because we are talking about how does culture grow, right? And what Hazlitt or this poem is saying is that culture is 